It was the best of times. It was the late 19th century, and Christians in the West were seeing remarkable success with their social activism. English evangelicals had succeeded in abolishing the slave trade in any waters where the world's most powerful navy sailed. Christian abolitionists in the States had succeeded, though through a war, in abolishing slavery here in the U.S. Our own American Baptist denomination actually broke with Southern Baptists over the issue of slavery. It was a very encouraging time. It was also, to quote Dickens, the worst of times. Within the church, many saw the other social ills which were plaguing society and determined that the church was to be the instrument for addressing those ills. Well, pastor, that sounds like a good thing, right? This ideology soon spread through all the historic Protestant denominations and became what is known as the social gospel. Uh, The proponents of this gospel began by changing the emphasis of the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ was fine, but the church should really focus less on that and more on doing good and fixing all the problems of society. What began, however, as a change in emphasis soon became an outright denial. Gone were the perennially unpopular doctrines of sin and God's judgment. Gone was the atoning sacrifice and resurrection of Christ. The Christian view that human nature was fallen was replaced with the understanding that that human beings are basically good, that through education and hard work we could be perfected. The doctrine of salvation through Christ alone was replaced with the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men. It was replaced by universalism. Uh, The Christian stance that the gospel should be proclaimed to all nations and so reconcile all people to God, well, this was replaced with the idea that the church was called to create heaven on earth. It was a relentless optimism steeped in the Enlightenment that the church could lead the way in creating a utopia here on earth in the present. In their view, Christianity needed to be rescued from its primitive and simplistic dependence on a supernatural God and be refocused into a force for actually accomplishing good. Christians should be less concerned about what God has done and is doing and more concerned about what we're doing. As we turn to the central conflict of our text today, we'll find that the social gospel was not without its progenitors even in the time of Christ. So pick up with me. We're going to read chapter 11, verses 55 to 57, and then we'll skip down to chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Now skip down to verse 9 with me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that's in Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning eager to hear from you from our word, from your word. Please proclaim your truth through me this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the edification of your people and the glory of God. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we pray even now that you would speak to us. Amen. Uh, Two weeks ago, we concluded in verse 53 with Caiaphas and the boys resolving that they would kill Jesus. So Jesus understandably left town and went to a small town called Ephraim where he could remain in relative safety. This week we pick up in verse 55, we find some time has passed. It's actually almost time for the Passover celebration. This is the third and final Passover mentioned in John. In God's providence, it was also during this festival that Jesus would offer himself as the true Passover lamb, the one sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. Now, many Jews were coming to this festival from all over, and they would come a week early in order to make sure that they were ritually pure, ritually clean before they took part in all of the Jewish religious festivities. Now, Jesus was a celebrated public figure at this point. Uh, Celebrated by the people, I should say. He was hated by the religious elite. And in this divide in opinion over Jesus, we're told that there were two groups looking for Jesus. The first group were the pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, Among them, there was a buzz of anticipation and excitement, hoping that they might be able to see Jesus. Not many expected that they actually would. And the reason they weren't is what we find in verse 57. The Pharisees and the chief priests were also looking for Jesus. And they had deputized the people as their sort of secret police. That if they were to see Jesus, they were to inform on him so that they could arrest Jesus and carry out the plans that they made in verse 53. Well, let's jump the first eight verses here of chapter 12. We'll come there in just a moment. But we'll simply note that Uh, Jesus has since traveled to Bethany outside of Jerusalem. This is the place where Lazarus and his family lives. He's had a dinner with good friends, and apparently word has gotten out about Jesus' whereabouts, and the leaders of the people and the crowds head out to Bethany. And we're told here that the crowd is seeking Jesus not only because of his reputation and his teaching, which have been quite popular at this point, but we're told they're also seeking Lazarus because they've heard of the incredible miracle Jesus performed by raising Lazarus from the dead. It turns out, raising someone from the dead is kind of a big deal. And there was a crowd of witnesses, and they had spread the word. And so people wanted to come and see or hear from the horse's mouth, is that that how it goes? For themselves, that Lazarus actually had been raised from the dead. And the Jewish leaders recognized this as a huge problem for them because people were coming to believe in Jesus in droves. It's not unlike what happened when Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to over 500 witnesses and people began to understand, wait, this must have actually happened. 
Well, if you recall two weeks ago, they justified their plot to kill Jesus, whom they recognized as an innocent man, by saying that it was either Jesus or the nation. That one man needed to die for the nation. It was an awful decision, but basically they said we had to do it. To quote Spock, they said, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And so they resolved to kill Jesus. But now they resolve to kill Lazarus as well. Dear friends, we find the danger here of ever rationalizing sin in your life. Here we find the danger of justifying actions which you know to be wrong. Don't do it. It's a slippery slope. They justified murdering Jesus by saying, we've been forced into this. Our hands are tied. We don't have a choice. We have to save the nation. Look how quickly they've now justified it again without all of the deliberation and hand-wringing. Look how easy it can be to become used to murder. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and instead of getting the point that Jesus was no ordinary man, they decided their best move was to kill Lazarus. Have you ever noticed this in your own life? I don't mean your decision to kill someone. I mean, how creative people can become when you point out sin. You say, hey man, I, this is what I saw. I, I don't think it's right for you to do that. And all of a sudden, the guy like walks over to a cork board. He starts push-pinning documents and pictures up on the board. And he takes lines of yarn and he's connecting them. And up, up at the top, you see like a picture of the grassy knoll and, and red Sharpie. And he goes over and he starts writing differential equations. And, and then he starts citing Supreme Court cases to you. And before you know it, you're like, dude, all I said is you were being really harsh to your wife. He's like, yeah, well, you didn't understand what was really going on. And here's how actually you're the one in the wrong. And like, it's really obvious when we see someone else do that, isn't it? It's really obvious when somebody else starts rationalizing their sin. But then somebody points it out to us, and we go looking for our court board, don't we? Listen, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how gifted you are. Sin makes you stupid. Sin blinds you to the truth. And the worst thing you can do with your sin is to rationalize it as justified and go down the same slippery slope as the chief priests here. How much better for you, how much better for your pastor if we just decide we're going to own it? We take responsibility and we bring our sin to the God who promises that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, that's our option, right? We can rationalize it and become irrational ourselves or we can take it to God and be forgiven. It's not a hard decision when you really think about it. Well, we've seen these two groups who are looking for Jesus. Why don't we turn now to the first eight verses of chapter 12, and we're no longer looking at those seeking Jesus, but we're looking at those who have access to Jesus. Beginning of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet with Jesus 
and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Almost five years ago, the city of Boston held a victory parade for the world champion Boston Red Sox. Just waiting for an amen. All right, there we go. I got a hand wave. Hundreds of thousands of excited fans turned out to the streets to adore their conquering heroes. The players, for their part, were paraded around like royalty on what else but duck boats. It was an exciting time for the city, and the players uh, enjoyed experiencing the glory accorded to them for their hard work and dedication paying off by winning the series four to nothing. Well, if the Gospels are not familiar to you, you might expect a similar scene for the King of Kings as he prepared to enter into his glory. That if he were to be anointed before the glory of the cross, that he would do so in spectacular fashion before hundreds of thousands of adoring fans. But that's not what God chose to do. Christ was not born in an imperial palace. He was born in a stable. And in God's providence, he was not, in, he was not anointed before the emperor of Rome but at a small dinner party in a small village by a relatively unknown woman. The point is that God doesn't always see things the way we do, and that God is happy to be identified with ordinary and unknown people. So we say, we see here that six days before Passover, Jesus has returned to Bethany. This was the village outside of Jerusalem where Jesus camped out in the last week of his life. This was where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. And it says that they threw him a dinner. And we think that the they there refers to Lazarus's family. Uh, from the parallel account in Matthew, we find that this dinner took place at the house of Simon the leper. Which I think is interesting. If, if your name was like immortalized in history in the scriptures, that you would always be known as the leper. Guy got a tough break. We don't know everyone present, but we do know that Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are there. Martha, as is her habit, is serving everyone, and Lazarus is reclining at the table. And in verse 3, we encounter Mary. Now, as you recall, she's been friends with Jesus for quite some time now. And not too long ago, Jesus raised her brother from the dead. So, not only does she believe in Jesus as the Lord of all creation, but she also is incredibly grateful to Jesus for raising her brother. So, let's set the scene here. The, the guests are probably sitting around a low table. This is not like our own dinner parties. The, the tables were close to the ground, and the guests would sit on mats on the floor, and they would lean on one arm on the table with their legs uh, set out uh, uh, away from the table, and they would eat with their right hand. So you have people around the table like this, and they're eating a meal. 
at a certain point, Mary, this woman, comes into the room and she begins to do some things that are very unusual to us and that were very unusual for them. She comes in with a Latin pound of perfume. The ESV calls it ointment. Uh, This is about 11 ounces. So imagine her coming in with a tall coffee from Starbucks, except instead of coffee, there's really, really expensive, pure, nard perfume. Uh, As Judas will later attest, this was worth roughly 300 denarii, or you could think of it this way. This was an ordinary person's annual salary, right? So this perfume was so precious, they had to go to India. That's where the spike nard plant grew. So they had to get this perfume all the way from India 2,000 years ago. So you can imagine why it was so expensive. And so she takes this incredibly expensive perfume she has, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. She pours out the whole container. Calvin points out in reading the parallel accounts that she probably anointed his head down to his feet, but John here is choosing to emphasize her her humility and coming to Jesus at his feet, which was something that only a slave would do. And since there was quite a bit of excess, she's got 11 ounces of this stuff, she wipes the excess with her hair. And a Jewish woman would never let down her hair in public in this day. Well, we see that such is the purity of this perfume that the entire house was filled with its fragrance. Now, if this scene strikes you as awkward and uncomfortable, that's probably because it was. But you know who wasn't overly concerned with appearances? Mary and Jesus. I just want you to think about for a moment what she's doing here. This woman is so devoted to Christ, so overcome with gratitude to the man who raised her brother from the dead, she stoops in humility, bowing down before him in adoration and worshiping him in the best way she knows how. She takes her most expensive and prized possession and she says, Jesus, you are worth more than this. And she gladly sacrifices it to her Lord. And she doesn't care a thing about the sneering onlookers like Judas. It's not unlike another shocking act of devotion that we find in Luke chapter 21. We have a slide for this. Jesus is in the temple with his disciples and he looks up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he he said, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So Mary makes this remarkable act of devotion to Christ. Jesus here commends a poverty-stricken widow for giving her very best to God, for giving all she had to live on. By worldly standards, these two acts are crazy. Mary, as Judas points out, anointed Jesus with something that could have fed a lot of poor people. The widow gave everything. There's only one way in the world any of this makes sense. If you understand and believe two things. First, that you understand your own sin. 
You understand, as we mentioned earlier, that we are all commandment breakers. We've all failed to live up to God's holy and righteous standards. We've never lived in the way he's called us to live. And yet out of love for you and for me, he sacrificed his son. He sacrificed that which was most precious to him for you. Jesus shed his blood for your sin. And he did this freely to save you. Though you and I deserve death, Christ died in our place. And so our debt has been wiped out. Our sins have been forgiven. And we've been adopted into God's family for eternity. And it was 100% God's grace. A grace that we receive by trusting in Jesus. When you see it that way, you recognize that Jesus is worth far more than we could ever give him in a thousand lifetimes. But secondly, as you walk with Jesus, as you follow Christ in this life, as you get to know him better, as Mary has had the opportunity to do, you find that the, the better you know Christ, the more you love Christ. I confess that as I've had the opportunity to present Christ to you through his word, I've grown immensely in my own love and admiration for him. He's truly the perfect man and perfect God. He's righteous when I'm unrighteous. He's bold for truth when I'm a coward. He's compassionate when I'm selfish. He's generous when I'm stingy. He's strong when I'm weak. He's, he's wise when I'm foolish. He's everything that I'm not and I desperately want to be. And yet he knows all of this about me. And he knows everything about weak faith Mary and triple Christ denying Peter and arrogant persecutor Paul and yes, sinful you. And he looks at us and despite all of that, he loves us and he says, follow me. <laughs> the king of kings, ruler of all creation says, follow me. In light of that, what would you not give up to be with Christ? How could you not want to give him the very best of your time and your talent and, yes, your resources? You see, God had no need of the widow's might. And Jesus had no need of Mary's expensive nard perfume. But God was honored by the voluntary, sacrificial gift of both of them. God has no need of your coin, of your time, or your talent. He was getting along just fine before you were born. And whatever you do give to him, it actually already belongs to him, doesn't it? Giving isn't for God's benefit. Giving is for your benefit. Now, I know that many of you are already giving sacrificially, and I'm so thankful that, for that. But maybe some of you here are not giving sacrificially of your time and your talent and resources to Christ through his church. And I just want to ask, why is that? Perhaps you don't think it's enough to make a difference. And to answer that, I would just point you to Jesus commending the widow for her two copper coins. I would also point you to Jesus who took a little boy's lunch and with it he fed 5,000 people. But perhaps... You don't agree with the direction of the church or the leadership or the music or whatever it is. If that's the case, I'd encourage you to, to come and talk to the elders. And if you're still not satisfied, then I would encourage you that you really should find a church that you can trust, where you can sacrificially give yourself in adoration to Christ like Mary here. 
Because if you don't, you're missing out on a life-changing opportunity for worship, the opportunity to please your heavenly Father in the way you give yourself to him. Judas was not about that. In verses 4 to 6, we find ourselves with grumpy Judas performing a virtue signal. You say, how do I know it's a virtue signal? Well, verse 5 tells us that despite Judas's protestations, he couldn't care less about the poor. He was a thief. He used to be in charge of Jesus' money bag. And the guy used to help himself to what was in Jesus' money bag. Imagine that. You are the guy who stole from Jesus. He probably sees this perfume as an opportunity for some extra cash. He's rotten. But that doesn't stop him from presenting himself in an outwardly righteous fashion. And he gives a, a kind of a logical argument. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? Jesus should know better than accepting her offering. Judas wants us to know that he is more righteous and compassionate than Jesus. Now, I think if we're being honest, there's probably quite a few people here today, we may not admit it, but we find Judas's argument a little bit compelling. What an extravagant waste of perfume. If you're just going to pour something out like that, you might as well put it to better use. Well, if you find yourself agreeing with Judas, let me caution you against agreeing with the man who's infamous for betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, that's probably a sign that your heart is not on the right track. Be wary of those who would have you downplay adoration and worship of our Redeemer for the sake of doing good. Those who pit the doing good over and against the worship of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Judas is the godfather of the social gospel. And it is the, the gospel of Judas which killed the mainline church, especially here in New England. So let's again examine his statement for just a moment. Why is it that Judas feels this way? Let's pretend just for a moment he actually did care about the poor. Would he still be in the wrong? Yes. Not because he cared too much for the poor, but because he thought too little of Christ. When he said, why was this not sold and given to the poor? What he was saying is, Christ was not worthy of such a lavish gift. I was talking to my wife, Meredith, last night about it. And she was saying, even if they had sold the perfume, could you think of any use of that perfume more noble than to use it to anoint the king of kings. After three years with Jesus, all of his teaching, all his miracles, Judas still didn't recognize that he was walking with God. He saw Jesus as just another guy. 
Now, I bring this to your attention because I want you to see this. Judas was a guy with access to Jesus. It's not like he's one of the Pharisees. He was one of the 12 people on earth closest to Jesus. But apparently, he's been going through the motions. You realize that's a danger for church people like us, right? That we simply go through the motions, seeing Christ and his word and his people, but never truly trusting him ourselves. I mean, we're only a week out from the crucifixion at this point. Judas certainly had his doubts about Christ by now. But do you know we don't have a single record of Judas ever saying or expressing his doubts to Jesus? We have a whole bunch of Psalms doing that. He never said, hey, Jesus, what do you mean when you say my kingdom's not of this world? Or, hey, Jesus, what do you mean the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and handed over to the Gentiles and crucified? That doesn't sound like my kind of Messiah. He never mentioned anything. Listen, I know that there could be a hundred reasons that you're here this morning. And I hope that you're not just going through the motions because it seems right at the moment. My goal, dear friends, listen, my goal in my ministry is that you would learn to trust Christ in such a profound way that you give your everything to him, confident as Mary was that he is worth it and that you cannot outgive God. You might look like the picture of faith on the outside. You may be a long-time church member or one of the 12 disciples. But inside, you might be struggling with doubts. If you have doubts or questions or concerns about the faith, we all do at certain times. I'm here for you. I mean, that's the reason I entered ministry, the reason I pursued theological education, so that I can help you learn to trust Christ. And talk through your doubts. Don't just go through the motion like Judas did and allow your doubts to turn you away from the Son of God. But there's one more danger to going through the motions. You can leave the faith when it becomes inconvenient. Or worse, you can stay in the faith but without personal faith. Such was the case with Judas. John is at pains to show us Judas was not concerned about the poor. He was a greedy man, and he cloaked his greed by pretending to be zealous for good works. Maybe he even fooled himself for a time, but all things are eventually revealed, friends. Judas was the worst kind of hypocrite because Judas was a religious hypocrite. And it's easy for us to point the finger at Judas and think that we could never do such a thing. But unfortunately, friends, the history of the church is littered with men and women who pretended piety on Sunday, but who were rotten to the core. And I could give you countless examples, unfortunately. Frederick Douglass, himself a believer, wrote of his own slave master in such terms. He wrote this in his autobiography. In August 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting, and there he experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he didn't do this, he would at least become more humane and kind. I was disappointed in both these respects. It neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. 
Prior to his conversion, he relied on his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. He prayed morning, noon, and night. His activity in revivals was great, and he proved himself an instrument in the hands of the church, converting many souls. His house was the preacher's home. They used to take great pleasure in coming up coming up there to put up. For while he starved us, the slaves, he stuffed them. It's the horror of dishonoring God becoming worse after taking the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we all in some measure fail to live up to the lofty ideals that we espouse as Christians. In other words, we remain sinners until we go to glory. The good news of the gospel is that anyone can become a child of God by repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do so. But if we who are already in Christ are to avoid that kind of hypocrisy, it will require the same thing that we live lives characterized by ongoing repentance. That as we become more like Christ, we grow in our desire to kill the flesh by the Spirit. And so we turn to verses 7 and 8. Here Jesus is going to set the record straight in his rebuke to Judas. He defends Mary's lavish act of devotion as being the right one. If you read Matthew's account, what does Jesus say? He says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. Now, verse 7 is kind of clunky and hard to translate. I think the NIV actually gets it best here. It says, Jesus says it was intended that she should save it, the perfume, for the day of my burial. In other words, Jesus is saying, this was the exact, right, God-ordained use of this expensive perfume. So in verse 7, he commends Mary's act of devotion. In verse 8, Jesus wants to reorient our priorities. He says this, you will always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Now, I want to point out what Jesus did not say. Jesus didn't say, ah, forget about the poor. They're always around. The poor aren't really that important. Don't care about them. Of course he didn't say that. We know caring for the poor, especially those in the church, is a very important and godly thing to do. What did James say in James 1? He said, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Uh, John, in his first epistle, says the same thing. He says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So what's clear here is that the love of God causes us to love those around us in a tangible, sacrificial way. Jesus is saying, loving your brother is a sign God's love is within you. So if that's true, then what is Jesus saying here with this comment on the poor? Here's what I think he's saying here. He says, your 
devotion to God is your highest priority. How do I know? Jesus was once asked by the Pharisees, Matthew 22, Mark 12, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. Now consider Mary's anointing of Christ. Consider that she took her most valuable possession and she said, Christ, you are worth more than this. I gladly give this to you. Would you say that looks like someone obeying the greatest commandment? I would. You know, this is, we're going to do some give and take here, guys. You might say, yeah, pastor, but I remember what Jesus said next. The second greatest commandment. Jesus said was to love your neighbor as yourself. That's true. And the second greatest commandment flows from the first. In fact, the second greatest commandment is, a, is impossible apart from the first. You see, the problem with Judas and those even today who advocate for some form of the social gospel is that they inverted the order. They de-emphasized love of God and they elevated love of neighbor in its place. And when they did so, they turned love of neighbor, the good deeds that were called to perform as Christians, they turned good deeds into a functional God or what the Bible calls an idol. They took a good thing and they made it a God thing. And this is the irony. If you make your good deeds your God, if you elevate even something good like love of neighbor over love of God, you may win the world's accolades, but you won't actually accomplish good because God alone defines what is good. And your actions will be idolatrous. But if your good deeds flow from your love of God and they're motivated by his grace and for his glory, if they flow from gratitude to God, then they are truly good deeds. Let's be clear on this, brothers and sisters. Doing good is not the gospel. I'll say that one more time. Doing good is not the good news of Jesus Christ. It is an implication of the gospel. It is how we respond to the grace of God. This is why Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. He's saying, guys, there will always be time for you to care for the needy. And by the way, you should. This is a good thing. He says, but I'm not going to be here physically much longer. He's a week out from the cross. He says, don't fault Mary, who has little time left with me, for choosing to do what is best over what is good. J. Gresham Machen was one of the early opponents of the social gospel. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, arguing that what was being birthed in the early 20th century was not a liberal form of Christianity, but a different religion altogether. Despite pushback from those like him, 
who saw that the gospel of Christ was being overshadowed, the social gospel triumphed in the early 20th century. It took over all of the Protestant denominations. They won for a time. Then in 1914, in the birthplace of liberal Christianity, the most highly educated nation on earth, the place where enlightenment rationalism was at its apex, the place that sought to establish its own utopia for its people. Germany invaded France through Belgium and kicked off World War I, and for five years the entire world saw the depravity of the human heart on display. And just to make the point loud and clear, they did it again 20 years later, showing particular animosity toward the Jews. Unless you think we've gotten past that as humans, I simply turn your attention to world events and the growing anti-Semitism around the world. When the social gospel folks made a good thing into the main thing, And when they taught that humans were basically good, that we could be perfected through education and hard work, we could build a perfect society. When they abandoned the gospel, they lost all credibility in light of the ashes of Auschwitz. And the mainline church, which trumpeted the social gospel, has been in rapid decline ever since. The gospel of Jesus Christ is never popular. No one likes to be called a sinner. No one wants to need a savior. But it will never be proven false because it's rooted in truth. The gospel message, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So let us not fall prey as Judas did, as did the 20th century church, to the idea that anything... Even good things should displace the gospel and our devotion to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.